Make a lampstand, verse 31, of pure gold and hammer it out, base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. Now, what's different, we're talking about uh, some of the furniture that's in the tabernacle. We've talked about the first piece of furniture that Moses was told to have uh, uh, to construct was what? The ark, and then you got to have a lid for a box, right? And then what's that lid called? Yeah, and that all sits behind the, the veil. And then if you just take a step out, if you're looking at the veil, um, over here on your right is going to be the what? The table of showbread. We talked about that last week, going to John chapter 6, uh, about Jesus being the bread of life. We talked uh, at really at... Uh, ad nauseum, I guess you might say. That's not even a phrase that I would typically use, but it seemed right there. Uh, We exhausted the concept of Jesus being the bread of life. And, um, and now, if you, if you pan all the way over to your left and you look at your left, here's a table of showbread. What do you have over here? You have the lampstand. Now, what's interesting is if you look right in front of you where the veil is, what was, what's right there? You guys remember, we haven't really talked about it yet. It's the altar of incense, and what's interesting is that's not going to be introduced for several more chapters down the road. I, I haven't found a good explanation of, of why that is, but uh, I believe it's chapter 30, uh, whenever the altar of incense, that, that final piece inside of there, uh, God represents it and tells, him, uh, tells Moses to have them construct it. So over to the left, uh, this evening we're going to be focusing, first and foremost, if we get through it, uh, we're going to be focusing on the lampstand. God tells them this. If you remember the other pieces of furniture inside of there, do you remember how God told them to construct it? Two different types of materials. What was it? Acacia wood and then gold on the outside. The wood represents what? Humanity. Gold represents his deity. These are two things that you should have written down somewhere in your notes or, or in your margin, that the wood is humanity, that the gold is representing deity, because uh, we, we will use that, uh, the phrase that you guys will be familiar with, it's been probably about a year since I've talked about it, but expositional constancy. You're going to see that these types of materials, there's going to be a constant likeness um, throughout Scripture and so forth. So if you remember, when Jesus is born, the, uh, the group of wise people come to him. How many? Yeah, the wise men came. Uh, the wise men came to visit him. Maybe there's some wise women, too. Um, and remember, what was the, what's, the, what's the first thing that we often say that they brought? gold. Okay, so, uh, so here's that popping up again. Anyways, so they made it out of wood covered in gold, but this lampstand, God says something interesting about it. Um, make a lampstand out of what? Pure gold. Gold represents what? Yeah, deity. There's something special about this lampstand that it's not made of wood and then covered up uh, or overlaid with, uh, with gold. And we're going to find something very interesting. This lampstand really represents a lot uh, in this tabernacle. Uh, the first thing, let's look at this to just kind of get our minds moving in this direction. Go to 1 John. Uh, if you go to the last book in your New Testament, Revelation, go back. What's the name of that book again, by the way? Revelation. Go backwards, there'd be a, a page or two, Jude, and then go backwards, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter 1. And you could also take note uh, that in John chapter 1, the gospel of John, that it talks about uh, in him was life and he was the light of the world. But John, who wrote the gospel, and then he's writing these, we call these 1st, uh, 2nd, 3rd John, his epistle letters, we see that he's going to talk a little bit more about Jesus being the light. So let's pick up in 1st John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is what? Yeah, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by what? Okay. John will go on to say, um, if you just look at chapter 2, verse 15, John would say this darkness would be represented by the world. And, and in 2.15, John says this, Do not love the 
world or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, I got to do it. The lust of his eyes, I got to have it. And the boasting of what he does, look what I got, does not come from the Father, but from the what? The world and its desires will what? Pass away, but the man who does the will of God, what happens? Lives forever. One of these days, I'm going to get all of us in the same exact version of the NIV uh, when we go through that. Unfortunately, the new Bibles I purchased, it's a, it's a newer translation of the NIV, so it's not even what I have. But John is saying this. Um, we're going back to 1 John chapter 1. He's saying this. If you love the world, if you want the world, if, if that is just you, if that is what you want and you're craving, you're, you're not God's. You're, you're not God's child. You're, you, you're, you have no desire for him. You want the world. Uh, there's no darkness in God. And so that's what John is telling us there in chapter 2. You either love the world or you love God. If you love the world, you don't love God. God is not in you, okay? So he goes on to say this, 1 John 1.5, um, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet, yet walk in the darkness. What's the darkness? The world. If we claim that we're saved, one of his followers, yet we're living for the world. That's where our heart is. We what? We lie. We've deceived ourselves. We've created a false religion that, that in our mind, the false religion gives us the best things of God while being able to live like the world and feel okay about it while we're on our way to hell. That's what John's saying there. We live and we do not live by what? Truth. But if we walk in the light, and you guys know this song, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another, what's that word, fellowship? Partnership in the Greek. means that we partnership up with the other believers. Um, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Amen? Amen. So John is making it very clear. There's a wide road and there is a narrow road. The world is going down which one? The wide one, and it leads to what? It leads to destruction. The narrow one, who's leading us down that one? Jesus is, our light is leading us down that road, and it leads to what? Eternal life. It's, it's one or the other. You can't say, give me both of them, make me happy. That's not how it works. Matter of fact, true happiness can only be found in Christ Jesus. It cannot be found in blending God with the things of the world. That's foolishness that is um, deception. It's false. And it is meaningless, as Solomon would say. It is empty. Make a lampstand, back over to Exodus 25, of pure gold, hammer it out, basin shaft, its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms shall be of one piece of it. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other, three cups shaped like almond flowers with, with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. So just get the picture here. There's kind of a center light, and then there's three lights coming off on either side for a total of seven lamps here. We don't know exactly what this looked like. Moses knows what it looks like. He's going to tell the people exactly, uh, his craftsmen, what it's supposed to look like, but we don't know what it looks like. Now, we do know this. You can write this down. You can Google it. It is called the, um, in 78, it's not, <laughs> I don't want to say the name. A Titus. It's the Arch of Titus. Cyrus was coming to my mind. If you Google the Arch of Titus, there is a, there is a picture there, a picture there of, uh, or, or kind of a mural that's, that's on an arch, and it shows when, um, 
the Romans had to destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD, that they had taken the furniture out of uh, the temple that was there. And one of the things that it shows them carrying off is the lampstand from the temple. And it's going to be a real close depiction. We don't know what this lampstand looked like, but we know what the lampstand in Jesus's day, uh, we have an idea of what it looked like because they carved it into stone as some of the, you know, some of the, the treasure that they had carried off um, out of the temple area. And then there's a table right there too, probably the, either the table of showbread or the altar of incense. But if you want to see that, it's called the Arch of Titus. And so anyways, it says, verse 34, and on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches uh, shall be of one piece with the lampstand hammered out in pure gold. Can you imagine making this, you know, they think maybe the lampstand was probably five or six feet tall. Can you imagine making that out of one piece of gold? Uh, You don't just get to add a little bit in here somewhere, but it's out of one piece of gold. And, uh, And it says, then make it seven lamps and set them up. And here's the key. This is where we get into the application. Make the seven lamps, set them up on the lampstand so that they, what? Light the space in front of it. Now, what we're going to find out in chapter 26 is that uh, that tabernacle that we have back there, this, and the tabernacle just means what? What is it? It's just a tent. It's something that's supposed to be a mobile that they can break down, they can pack up, and they can move, whether it's a day or a month of traveling. Once they settle, they can go ahead and set it back up, put it all together. And so, but what we're to understand is inside the tent, there's several layers of coverings over the top of it. There's going to be solid walls on three sides of it. There's going to be a curtain across uh, the very front of it, so it's going to be dark inside of there unless you have what? Yeah. This lampstand is the only light that is in the tabernacle, the only, the only light there in that first room, uh, the holy place. Now, if you go past that curtain, also called the what? The veil, and go in behind there, what illuminates that room? The Gloria, it's, the Shekinah, it's just a glow in that room. Can you imagine that? That must have been absolutely amazing for that high priest to be able to see that. Set it so that it lights the space in, how? Front of it. So here's this lampstand. It's an oil lamp burning all the time. Has to be maintained every day, but it's casting light over the area where there is work to be done. The altar of incense, morning and evening prayers, table of showbread. Um, uh, Once a week, you're changing all that out. You have to trim the wicks. You have to fill it with oil and all of that. And the purpose of it is to cast light. Now, remember, if you go, let me just take a look at my notes here. We'll go ahead and go to John chapter 8 real quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I love talking about this fact of Jesus being the light of the world. He makes a very interesting claim. And maybe John, what we read a little while ago in 1 John, John was kind of expounding upon what Jesus was saying. That would probably be a good thing to write about, uh, talk about what Jesus talked about. But in John chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 6 of John, what's your primary key thought in that chapter? Bread. Chapter 7. Water, chapter 8, light. Okay, now, verse 12 says this. This One of the I am statements here. Chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke again to the people, and he said, I am the what? Okay, now that's all great. Okay, Jesus makes everything a little bit brighter. Is that what he's trying to say? Hey, Jesus makes everything. Just learn to be like Jesus and everything will be kind of like rose. You just put the rosy glasses on right now. That's not what he's saying, is he? He's saying that men are in darkness. Matter of fact, keep your place there in John chapter 7. Go backwards with me again to John chapter 1. And it says in verse 4, we saw this just last study, 
in him, John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness is what? Not understood it or has not going to receive him. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. So it's saying this, when Jesus came to the world, he was shining the glory of God, the reality of God to mankind, but mankind rejected it. Matter of fact, in John chapter 3, we're going to see that as Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, um, he tells uh, Nicodemus essentially, this is the verdict, uh, verse 19, 319, light has come into the world, but men, catch this, I need you guys to see this. John 3, verse 19. Because we all know John 3, 16, right? Oh, yeah. We can spout that one off. Lost people can spout that one off, no problem. Look at what Jesus says. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Who's the light? Jesus. But men loved what? Darkness instead of what? Yeah. They chose the world over God because their deeds were evil. Their flesh is evil, but they had an opportunity. Whose flesh isn't evil? But every man, woman has a choice to make. Do I make the decision to follow the light of the world, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life? Do I follow the path that God has for me, his love, his redemption, him paying for my sin, my wickedness, and my rebellion against him? Do I take the one who loves me more than anything else in this world and will love me more than anything else in all eternity, or am I going to, for a time, enjoy sin in this world? Uh, Scripture says sin is fun for a season, but you will reap what you sow, And be sure that your sin will sooner or later, what? Find you out. And if you love the things of the world, the love of God is not in you. You're starting to see the theme, the pattern that's going on here. And Jesus is saying this, men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil, everyone who loves the world, you actually hate the light. Isn't that interesting? People say, well, hey, God, but you know what? I'm just going to live like the world. No, if you want to live like the world, you what? You hate God. Now, that's almost getting some toe stomping there. I mean, that could, that could really be sensitive to somebody. Well, I can't live like the world. Like, I, I can't have all that the world has for me and God. No, it's, it's God or Nothing. It's make your decision which way you want to be on. A house divided against itself can't what? Stand. It means that you have to make a decision. So here's the deal, guys. Right now, where, you, where you're sitting, where I'm standing, we have to make this decision right now. This isn't something where we just say, oh, well, that's pretty interesting, talking about the light of the world and division, about living, living for the world or living for God. This is a decision. These are one of those things that we come across in Scripture where typically, if you were doing this on your own, you would stop you might close your word, have your little pad and paper there, and say, Lord, what are you speaking to me right now? Because maybe the Lord's telling somebody in here, hey, you know what? You're more about the world than you are me. You love the world. No man can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, right? That's how it goes. Can't do it both ways. Can't do it my way. It has to be God's way or no way or the highway. So John is telling us back over to Exodus. John is giving us the understanding that Jesus is the light. He is that which we need. Now, remember we talked uh, at length last week that the whole purpose of the tabernacle is God is saying, build this not as his home, not as his cage, but he says, build me a place where I can dwell with man. The whole purpose of God building this tabernacle or having the people build it is so that God has a place to dwell. And we talked about if you could go up and get that aerial view, where is God dwelling in location of the camp? 
right in the center of his people. It's exact, catch that. I mean, don't, don't let that one blow past you. God is dwelling right in the center. All eyes, 360 degrees, wherever you're at, you could see the temple area. This is what God wants. He wants to be the center. He doesn't want to be left field. He doesn't want to be right field. He doesn't want to be in the field. Matter of fact, if you think you got God in the field, he's probably not on your team. You need God in the middle, in the midst of everything, that is why scripture speaks to us about him sitting. He, it equates our heart as a what? As a, I'm sorry, I'm, I didn't lead you guys very well there. It equates our heart as a throne. That's oftentimes what we, what we talk about. You know, who's sitting on, on your heart? Who's sitting on your throne? And this is where Jesus says that he and his father want to come in and he wants to dwell in us. As scripture would call it the heart. And that's where it's, it's, it's the center of our life. It's kind of the epicenter, the essence of who we are. And that's where Jesus wants to be. Is, is that where he is tonight? Can you say, just take a snapshot of your last week. Is that where he's at? Is he over here? Is he out over there? Is he, is he something that you're like, gosh, I sure would like to have him one day. Is this, is this where he's dwelling? Is he lighting up your life? Back to Exodus chapter 25. Now, when we look at this lamp, there's a lot of different things that we can think about. First and foremost, we're seeing that this lamp represents who? Jesus, who is the light of the world. Remember, he says this, whoever follows me, sorry, I told you to keep your place there in John chapter 8. If you're there, well, Jesus says this, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, catch this, will never, what? Walk in darkness. We're going to say that again. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. He's going to lead us. You can go back to Psalm 23. He's the good shepherd. He's going to lead us down through the valley of the shadow of death. We won't fear those scenarios because his staff and his rod, they what? They comfort us that we know that we're protected because if God is for us, who can be against us, right? So this is the picture, first and foremost, of this lamp. It's a light of the world. So Jesus is saying it's a light of the world. Now there's something else that we should understand. The light also represents his word. How does God lead us in this world? Through two things, through the Spirit and his word, right? The Spirit of God uses the word of God to direct our lives. Now, you ever heard this one before? Thy word or your word is a lamp unto my, meaning that we don't know where we're supposed to be going, but if we let the word of God illuminate the path in front of us, we know what's there. So it's our Savior who's leading us by his word, by his spirit. Now we know where we're supposed to go. Otherwise, Jesus would say for people who are blind, Meaning that anybody who does not want to use the word of God or, or, or says, hey, you know what? I really don't need the word of God. I really don't need Jesus's input on my life. I'm pretty good. I'm saved. I'm good to go and all that. But they have no need of him to direct their lives. They would be equated to people who are blind. And Jesus says, if blind lead the blind, won't they both what? Remember? Fall into the pit. How do you know where the pit's at? Have you ever had people tell you, huh, you better watch out the direction you're going? Why? Because you're getting ready to fall into a pit. That is what's great about having brothers and sisters in Christ around you and close to you because you may not see that you stopped walking with the lamp and that you're walking towards the edge of a cliff, but your brothers and sister Christians, they're like, whoa, hang on a second. You do what you want to, but I just got to let you know, you know, you're like two steps away from the edge of the cliff. Oh, I didn't know that was two steps. Yeah, you're two steps away from, the, okay, well, maybe I should go back to the path. Yeah, let's go back to the path. And what you do is you you pull out the word of God with them. You take them to John chapter one. You talk about that they need their path in life illuminated. You take them to first John chapter one. Say you need the path in your life illuminated. You could even go back to Exodus chapter 25 and say, Jesus is the lamp and he illuminates our way. He is, that's why he would say, I am the, the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but by me. Here's the deal, guys. You're not getting to heaven 
circumventing Jesus. You're not, you're not getting there. Nobody is getting there circumventing Jesus. Circumventing means going around, finding another avenue. I don't care how much church experience you have in your life. I don't care how many scriptures you can say. Even the demons, they know who he is. They acknowledge, right? Don't the demons? Scripture tells us they acknowledge who Jesus is. It's no big deal to be able to say, Jesus, 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 you know, like you're Dorothy and clicking your heels. That is not salvation. John made it pretty clear in 1 John, didn't he? You will be able to tell the stirring of the Spirit of God in your life by what you desire. Now, hear this. I did not say that you'll know the stirring of the Spirit because you'll be perfect, right? I didn't say that, did I? I said it's ultimately what is your desire, meaning this. It's almost like you're trying to run towards God. There's a strong man who's hanging on to you, but instead of just giving up and saying, okay, bud, we'll just go ahead and do it your way. It's that fight to get away from the flesh and the things of the world. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? You know when the spirit is in you because you're fighting against the world. And maybe the world's going to have, the world has its claws in every single person in this room in, a, in different ways and probably in some similar ways. But we each have our own battle. But we have to understand that the point of it is, is there the fight there? Is there a fight against unrighteousness for righteousness to be exuded, exhibited in and through your life? Is that what your hunger, remember, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We saw that Sunday morning, didn't we? So now we have uh, speaks of, uh, of Jesus and so forth. And here's another thing. The lamp, what kind of lamp did I say it was? Is it a candlestick lamp? No, it's oil. In Scripture, remember that fancy phrase, expositional constancy, when you see oil, represents what? The Holy Spirit. Now, the lamp does not burn without what? Without oil in it. Meaning, Christ is not going to illuminate without the the Holy Spirit. You got that connection there? So, it's, so this lampstand is a picture of Jesus illuminating the world. But remember, even Jesus, for those three years here after his baptism, it says that then the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness for his 40 days of, of testing that was out there. And the Holy Spirit was leading him through all that time in his ministry for the three years of where to go, when to move, when to stop, all sorts of things like that. And the same gift, Jesus says, as I have been leading you guys for three years. Think about it. Those disciples closest to him never had to worry about where they're going to sleep or eat for three years. Do you ever think about that? Everything was on Jesus. Everything was on Jesus. He was the coordinator. He was the one who was leading them. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the same that's been guiding me that I have been trusting. I'm going to ask my dad when I leave. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to all y'all, each one of you guys. That's the fulfillment of the Joel chapter 2. In, that, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all, upon all men. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. So we need the spirit of God working in and through to be able to illuminate the direction that we're going. Let's say it again. The spirit of God uses the word of God to what? To direct our lives. Now, take note of this. If there has been an, absent, an absence of the word of God in your life, you are very hungry spiritually. Not only that, but I can guarantee you this because I know it by personal experience and every single person in this room will know it by personal experience. When you are away from the word of God, you are making the wrong decisions in your life. Simply put. You know Why? Because you don't know where the right direction is. You don't know what the right choice is. You're looking at it. You don't even know what the choice is. You're like, uh, uh, one, two, three. I'll take number four kind of a deal. You don't know what you're choosing. You're just thinking, well, I think this would make me happy. This might be best for me. And Jesus is doing the, what? Come on now, Steve. 
Just let me direct you. Let's get some word into you. Why don't you just sit down and just dwell upon me for a little while. Let's see if we can get your compass pointed back towards north rather than towards your own selfish desires. So can anybody else identify with that? You know that without the word of God, you're not making the best decisions. Matter of fact, the best decisions are godly decisions. And you may say, well, I've done okay so far. No, you haven't. You may say, I got plenty of money in the bank. I'm rolling, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cruising high and all that. Things are good. I don't really have any problems in life. You're not where God wants you to be. So you know what that means? You're not doing very well. You're flunking out in Christianity 101 because God says, I have a life for you. I'm going to empower you. I have work for you. Jesus says, the Father, he's got work for you to do. Just like, come on, let's get going. That's why Paul says, I've run the race. <coughs> Finished the fight. I've kept the faith till the end. And that's exactly what, the God, what God the Father has in store for us. Let me, let me um, let's look at um, Revelation. What's the name of that book? Revelation. Revelation. Don't put an S on there or Somebody might tell you you're saying it wrong. Now, this lampstand idea, you know, I love, I love threads through Scripture. And that's what God does. He plants, remember we talked about we're in Genesis, that God sows. uh, Genesis has been called the garden of the Bible. God plants all these seeds in Genesis, and over the course of time of watering and so forth and tilling the soil, you see all these concepts popping up, and they just keep growing. And and Scripture is like this big tapestry. If you could see it going from wall to wall, here's Adam and Eve on that wall. Here's uh, here's the the end of Revelation. What's that book? Revelation. Revelation. There's the, at the very end of Revelation. That's where we're just living with God for, we come back to the earth for all eternity and all that um, with God. New heaven, new earth. And what God does is he takes a little strand of something, uh, of, of colored uh, thread, and he just weaves it all the way through this huge tapestry we have here. And you see it in Genesis, and you see it, or you see it in the beginning coming all the way down to the end. And I love stuff like that. I love tracing it out and finding where it goes. You know, the idea of, you know, your word is like a lamp unto my feet, and you just see the stuff just being woven all through there. Then Jesus saying this. uh, So in 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. You know what he says in Matthew chapter 5? The church is the light of the world. You are the light of the world if you have me where? In you. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Apart from me, you can't do anything. Now look at Revelation chapter 1. It tells us there in verse 12, John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned and saw seven golden lampstands. So John is uh, being taken up into the heavenly throne room. He's having this vision of what heaven's looking like. He's seen seven golden lampstands. Isn't that interesting? We have some lampstands there. How many of them are there? Seven. And among the lampstand um, was uh, someone like the Son of Man. This is Jesus, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. There's gold, right? Gold represents. Yeah, see? I mean, it's, isn't, it, isn't that cool? His head and his hair uh, were white like wool, uh, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. Well, Jesus then pops in, and he says in verse 19, John, write what you have seen, uh, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery, because John's probably like, I see these seven stars and these seven lampstands, and I see, I see, you know, this guy, like, I see Jesus walking. Jesus just walking around. Here's seven lampstands, and Jesus is just like, do, 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 you know, kind of in the midst of the lampstands. What do what the lampstands represent? How do we know? How, can we, how in the world can we possibly figure out what the lampstands represent? You just continue reading the book. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. It's kind of interesting to think that churches have angels assigned to them. And the seven lampstands are the what? Are the seven churches. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, what is represented as a lampstand in the heavenly throne room? 
the church. It's representing the church, right? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. John chapter 8. Matthew chapter 5, he says, you guys are the light of the world. Now, Jesus is, here's seven churches in existence in John's day. He's going to write letters to them, send them off, you know, uh, you know, with love from Jesus and so forth. He's going to send them off. But Jesus says this to the church of Ephesus. He says, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. We've talked about Ephesus previously on Sunday morning. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your what? Yeah. I'm going to take the light from your gathering. Meaning this, the spirit of God that's working through the fellowship, the spirit of God is going to be moved on to another place. Meaning this, just hear what Jesus is saying. It is possible for a group of people to be gathering together under the banner of church. Yet the spirit of God or the lampstand, has been removed. That's what Jesus is saying. By the way, just so we get our bearings right, this is only 60 years into the existence of the church. We're now about 1950 years down the road from there. 60 years into the church, Jesus is saying, you guys are no longer about me. He said, you guys know how to do everything. You guys have the terminology down. You got your Christianese. You can talk it with the best of them. Boy, when you need to do a prayer, boy, you can really pour it on and all that. You got the programs, the functions, the gatherings. You've got two, two lines on either side of the buffet tables. I mean, you guys, got, you guys are smooth fellowship operators there. But he says this. I hold this against you. What? You don't live for me. And he said, he does give him this warning to, what was that R word? Repent. Is that a word that is striking your heart this evening? The need for what? Repent means to what? To turn. And in order to repent, you have to confess you have been going the the wrong way. You know what else that means? You have to humble yourself before me a priest jason humble yourself before the lord and he will what he will lift you up please don't just file all this that we're hearing under bible study tuesday night bible study there it goes if there is a need for repentance This is God right now telling you there is need for repentance. Today, if you hear his voice, do not what? Can any more be said? No. God's word is spoken. Back over to to Exodus. So here we have this lampstand. Isn't that great? So now we know that we have a God who wants to be in the center of our lives. We know that we have a God who wants to dwell with us. He wants to be close to us. We know that we have a God who wants us even though we never wanted him in the first place. Isn't that kind of cool? I mean, that's what he's doing. He told the Israelites, I didn't choose you guys because you guys are better looking or taller or you know, whatever it may be. I like the color of your skin, so I chose you. That's not at all. He says, hey, this is really Abraham, you know? He, I just spoke to him, and, you know, he started following me. You guys are just the descendants of him. I made some promises to him, and this is the lot of y'all that I got here, but I'm still going to love you because he's faithful to his promise. And so now we know that we have a God who loves us based on who he is, his integrity, his word, his promises, never based upon our performance or our desire to try to satisfy him in any way whatsoever. And we could say, and three of us could say, yeah, you have a God who's chasing you down. You have a God who's chasing you down. Matter of fact, uh, somebody find this for me real quick. 
You may, may be able to, to know, I have an idea, but I don't want to say it wrongly. Have you ever read the, the passage where it talks about that, what God is trying to say? He's telling the people that he essentially was walking down the road, and he looked over in the brush, and he saw this baby that had been cast out, just newly born, and had been aborted over in the brush to die, and how God, and how God went over and he took us, and we were representative of the baby that was just cast aside just to die. It's all Satan wants for us is to just die. He, he loves that. And he picks us up, and he washes us, and he puts his clothing on us, and he makes us his own. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Did that baby say, oh, I really need a God right now in my life? Huh? No. Didn't even know what it needed. Guys, we didn't even know what we needed. And God came knocking on our door. That's really good news, isn't it? Amen? Okay. Verse 40 says this, if, uh, Exodus 25 and 40. And we'll jump into 26 here. See that you make all of these things according to the what? Pattern shown you. Meaning Moses has the pattern in his mind. He knows what it's supposed to look like. These are kind of some limited details. Moses has the pattern in his mind. And he says, make it exactly like this. Meaning this. There is no room for man's interpretation of God's word. Meaning that salvation has a pattern. You ever notice that about God? He's very pattern-oriented. I mean, God likes to work with patterns and rules and, and so forth. He sets boundaries and all that. He's not kind of the guy that's just, you know, it wasn't a shock to God in the, in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. When Eve was deceived and Adam chose to sin. Blame goes on him, by the way. And God wasn't up and like, oh, man. Chris, what are we? Chris and Jesus, what are, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Chris wasn't there. He was on the mind of God, though. He wasn't shocked by it and said, oh, man, what are we going to do? Hey, you know what? Jesus, you and the Holy Spirit, you guys flip for who's going to become the sacrifice. We'll go send one of you down there. Does anybody have a plan of, of what we should do? The, remember, Scripture tells us that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the what? Before man sinned, the plan was essentially already accomplished in God's economy. He's eternal, right? He knows everything eternally that way and eternally that way. Who understands that? I don't get it. It kind of makes your head, if you honestly sit down even with a piece of paper and a, and a pencil, it actually just really makes your head hurt trying to figure it out. He just is, I am. That's what he told Moses. Just tell him, I am has sent you. It's the best way to describe him. He's everything. He's all things. Now, he says, make it according to the pattern, meaning this. God has a pattern, one, for our salvation, and he has a pattern, two, for the life that he gives us. You notice that I made a distinction between salvation and the life that he gives us? Because the man on the cross, the one who says, you know, hey, take me with, you know, take me with you kind of a deal. And he says, hey, you'll be with me in paradise today. That guy experienced salvation, but what did he not experience? He didn't get to experience a spirit-filled life, did he? He never got to experience another option other than being a thief. You guys ever think about that? Somebody gets saved right before they die. They never get to experience what, what I explained to somebody one time. It took me years and years and years to ever get to this point to explain it to them. And it, and it kind of moved them, but kind of didn't. they not a believer. And I said, you know, the difference between a believer and a non-believer, catch this, the difference between a believer and a non-believer is the believer has a choice to make the right decision. The non-believer doesn't have a choice. 
Somebody who's walking without an illumination, their choices are taken from them. They just get pushed into scenarios. They're like the ship that's on the waves without a rudder and without any sails. She's like, well, I guess I'll go over here for a little while. Oh, the things, the world, I don't know why this is happening to me. And that's what Paul says. It's the person who's just knocked to and fro, back and forth. They have no stability in their life because they have no light. They have no word of God. Thus, they have no direction. There is a pattern for salvation, and it cannot be changed. The pattern of salvation is set. It is Christ only. Christ plus anything is null and void. It's Christ only. And then he has a pattern for the life that he wants to give us. You know what, you know what God says about the life he wants to give us? Well, here's a good indicator of it. Scripture tells us that he is conforming us to the image or the likeness of Jesus, of his son. That's what, that's what God, hear that, your attention please. God's desire is to conform you into what you read here about Jesus. By the way, you know what we've learned over the last two weeks? Maybe we get to chapter 26. You know what we've learned over the last two weeks? We see the first piece of furniture was the ark. On top of that, the atonement cover, meaning that Jesus is going to be our sacrifice, right? So if God wants to conform us into the image of Jesus, what's he going to start working in our life? If Jesus was sacrificial, good job, Willie. You know what we don't typically like to do? Yeah. Now, we don't mind to do something to help somebody out, but do you know what sacrifice really is? Sacrifice is when you really just don't feel like it or want to do it. Those are sometimes the most trying areas of sacrifice, isn't it? I don't, I don't really want to do that. Sometimes I see a, a need out there and I'm like, I, I don't really want to do it. It's not sacrificial, is it? Matter of fact, if we do it in this kind of in a begrudgingly way, it's not really a sacrifice. Now we're just prodded to do it because we feel guilty if we wouldn't do it. There's no real sacrifice. The second piece of furniture that we studied last week, the table of showbread. How beautiful are the feet of those who what? Bring good news or bring the bread of life to somebody. Right? Yeah. Who's the bread of life? Jesus says, what do we have? What do we feast on? The bread of life. Why? Because what is in you is supposed to come out of you. Filling you up, being a wellspring for eternal life. The Holy Spirit pouring out that bread of eternal life to those who are hungry in this world. Now we come to the light, right? We've already said it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. So the Father desires... He's moving. These are just a few ways sacrificial. <clears throat> Secondly, to communicate or to share the bread that we have. Right? Scripture would say, uh, it's, it's no benefit. What benefit is it for you to love people who are easy to love, essentially? Right? There's no blessing in loving somebody that's easy to love. There's, no, there's not a lot of blessing for Angela. I'm easy to love. She'll tell you about it. She'll be the first one. Easy. No. There's, no. there's no benefit in loving somebody who's easy to love, but loving somebody who is not easy to love, ah, there's the blessing. That's the beauty of it right there. That's where the changed heart starts coming in. And then the other piece of furniture we're studying today, the light of the world. What does God desire? He desires to conform us to the image of his son, Who's Jesus, by the way, in the lampstand? He is the light of the world. We are the light of the world. What does the Father do? What, is, what do you really think that God wants of you? What do you think in regards to the lampstand? What? Yeah. To show the light of Christ that is in you. If he's in you, can't show him if he's not. Can't get out a flashlight and like trick people. Hey, you got a little God thing going on here. Woo. No, that doesn't work. You don't get to stand under the light. 
cast shadows. It's that light that comes from within you. See, these are all basic things that the Father, this is what the Father, now you may think, but I thought God wants me to be successful in this world. I don't, I don't really find that anywhere in the Bible that I read. Now, I find that in humans as they just look at the Bible and they try to interpret it for what they want. Well, the, I thought God wants me to be happy. I'm not really, I don't find that in God's word. I find that in, in human beings trying to look at the Bible and trying to, trying to make it say what makes them feel good about. What I see is a God who says this. I have shown you my plan of, sal- of salvation. For 3,500 years in the tabernacle, going back several hundred years before that, 6,000 years ago into the Garden of Eden, when I told Satan, she will, she will crush your head, you're going to strike her seeds heel, but he's going to crush your head, the proto-evangelica, meaning the first mention of the, of the evangelistic message, of the message of salvation, that the woman will give birth to a child who will save the world, who will crush Satan, defeat him who holds the power of death, and to free all those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That's what Hebrews tells us, right? And I see a God that's saying, for For 6,000 years, I've made my intentions very clear regarding my unconditional love for you. That's what God's saying, right? By the way, this Bible, 66 books, cover to cover, what's the one theme about it? Redemption. Then God's plan of redemption, redemption means purchasing back, redeeming back. If you haven't read the book Redeeming Love, uh, we'll get a copy to you. You probably have one around here somewhere. Somebody else has one on their shelf. It's a great book if you're a reader. And here God is trying to say, now I'm going to explain how I want to purchase you back from Satan because Adam sold you into slavery. And I'm going to, over 66 books, tell you all in different ways so that you can understand. I'm going to give you a picture of a tent in the wilderness. We said last week, why does God use a tent? Because every, every society and people group understands a tent, right? Could he use a computer? No. Um, could he use Stonehenge? No. Well, we don't really get what that is. Yeah, something probably weird, some kind of something went on there. We don't know. Could he use the pyramids? We, we're not really in tune with that. But does everybody understand a tent? And God says, I'm going to show you. Catch this. Please hear this. This needs to be ground and ground and ground and ground into our lives. The tabernacle simply shows us this, how God is going to accomplish our salvation in his timing. It is the plan. And he says, make it exactly like the P word pattern I show you because my salvation is my salvation and there is salvation in no one else, Scripture says. It's the name that's above every name. It's going to be in Jesus. It's going to be through him. It's by grace you're saved, not by what you do, not by what you say. It is my saving you. And that's the end of it, God says. And then God's going to go on 1,500 years from that point of the tabernacle. And he's going to come down, wrap himself in flesh. So that mankind can see the sincerity of God and the reality of God, that God desires to show mankind that he is willing to be a little lower than the angels, to be (coughs) tested and tempted by Satan, be tested in every way, that he is our great high priest, that he is the Lamb of God, he's going to be our sacrifice, that he's the only one who's lived in this world sinlessly, and that he's still going to allow himself to be sacrificed. His choice in obedience to the will of his Father. And God says, here I am. I have come to save the world. I am the light of men. I am life. But the darkness received him not. Do you understand God's intentions is to save you and then produce, reproduce himself in 
the rest of the days that you have in this world. Does that make sense? God's intentions. He's fine with you getting married, fine with you having children, fine if, you, if, if you're single, fine if you want to get a job here or get a job in California or Hawaii, fine if you want to be uh, a teacher or if you want to be a doctor. It's fine whatever you want to do, as long, you know, as long as God's not telling you to do something specific. He gives you a lot of lateral freedom, whatever you want to do, but he says this, I want to be the light that shines through your life, not your old fleshly pattern of ways of living, which was leading you to death. Here's the question. If our old way of life was leading us down the pattern of death, why after we're saved are we still, uh, are we still trying to live according to our old understanding? Is it going to produce anything in our lives? Just dead, old, rotten fruit. And we'll get to heaven Won't be much glory there. The glory that's going to be in heaven is that, hey, God saved any of us. I think the angels look around, and I think every single person that makes it to heaven, they're like, glory to God in the highest. I mean, because it's certainly not by anything we do, did, or will do tomorrow. God desires, one, to save you, two, to produce the life of his Son in and through you. Here's a simple question. We'll actually finish up with this. Unless you guys have something else to say. So here's the question. Here's the challenge. What do you do with that? I mean, we're, you know, I'm standing. You guys are sitting, hanging around. What, what do you do with that? God, God's desire is to save you and to produce his son in and through your life. That's it. Now you think, and, and I'm right there with, with the best of you. I got a lot of running going on. What do you do with that? Okay. Go ahead and pray. We can go and hit Andy's on the way home. Or, is there a challenge right now in your life? Is there a challenge that says, man, if that is God's purpose, if that's his emphasis, what in the world am I doing? Right now, are you sitting there saying, according to God's ways, I'm, I'm not even in his ballpark as far as doing his will. I'm not even on the racetrack. God's yeah, hey, come over here. The, the race is over here. And we're like, yeah, I got to stretch a little more. What do you do with that? God's purpose is to save you and to what? Produce his son in you. That's, guys, that's it. Let's say it together. God's plan is to, one, save you, two, produce his son in you, and that's it. That is what he is concerned about. Now, think about how you pray. Oh, God, make this happen for me, and fix this, and fix that, and do all these wonderful things that I need to have done. When was the last time we spent five, ten minutes just, just saying, God, I need to let go of myself so that you can produce in me what you desire to produce. When, honestly, when was the last time you prayed that? Right? When was the last time you said, God, can, God in a greater way this day, change me into the likeness of Jesus because I am rotten and corruptible in my flesh. I need to be transformed by your grace. When was the last time you asked God for that? We'll pray about a whole slew of other things, won't we? You ever think about this? Just catch this, and I have one more thing to say after this. We're on a roll here. Might it be that those things that we're typically always so worried and concerned and praying about, how many of those things might be resolved in our life if Christ were already exuding himself through us and leading us? How many times do we make just poor decisions? Oh, God, you got to fix this. And God's like, you know, we could have got this taken care of four months ago if he just followed me in obedience, (laughs) When you heard me calling you, 
but you decided not to follow the light, but you decided to go down the other thing, and now you're asking, fix. how many times, honestly, how many times do we pray after the fact, right? We say hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Right? Is that what we say? Yeah. Do you know what? God gives us the ability to make right decisions every time. But we're going to have to submit to his word and his spirit. Isn't that basic? Right? Easier said than done, right? But does it make sense? If your goal is, is salvation already accomplished? Is salvation accomplishing your life? I hope salvation is accomplishing your life. You might be sitting out there saying, I don't know. I'm not living for Jesus at all. I'm living for the world. Well, you need Christ tonight. And you and the Lord can make that happen. I can't. A prayer's not going to do it. You're going to have to confess to the Lord about your need of him, whoever you may be. Last thing to say. I read it. It's in a uh, 30-day meditation thing by Andrew Murray. It's just 30 days in in, um, John chapter 15, I am the vine. Speaking about producing in our lives. And the very first thing says, says this in John chapter 15. Jesus says this. I am the, anybody know the next word? True vine. Now this is what blows my mind. I, 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 did, I did plan on sharing this with you guys in light of the tabernacle and everything. Jesus says, I am the what? True vine. Meaning this, catch this. It just, I didn't even get past that part. I, I got about two paragraphs down. What Jesus is saying is, you see all these other vines in the world? You got your cantaloupe vine, your watermelon vine, your grape vine. You got all the different vines in the world, right? You got vines growing up, trees and all that. You know what Jesus says? All of those vines testify of me. Did you ever think about that? That's why Jesus says, I am the true vine. All the other vines in the world, they're examples of him. Why? Because the vines produce fruit. Maybe it's a leaf. Maybe it's actual fruit, right? A grape or cantaloupe or watermelon, whatever it may be. And Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. All the other vines you see, and yet you start thinking about in the world, all the stuff that's in the world that speaks of the majesty and glory of God. You remember whenever Jesus is coming to Jerusalem? I don't want to get too far down this trail. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Everybody's hailing him as the Messiah, as their future king. And they say, oh, tell the people to quit praising you. Like, quick, tell them to stay in Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And he says, if I tell the people to be quiet, what? Creation itself will begin to magnify and glorify my name. Now, that would have been a cool, that's where you could insert the rock concert kind of thing, but we won't do that. You pen that down later, Janet. You can use it at your own will. But Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Why? And he says that if you're connected to the vine, what is produced in your life? Much fruit. Think about that now. Are you truly connected? Or are you in close proximity saying, I can identify that's the vine. The demons recognize Jesus. They recognize him as the son of God. They recognize him as God. Guys, it's easy enough for us to be able to be in that situation yet not truly be connected. Jesus says of false leaders, we also could, I think, relate this to the church in a sense, you can identify connection to the Spirit of God by the fruit that somebody's producing in their life. You agree? We are not called to condemn, right? We're not called to condemn, meaning we don't judge somebody and say, you're going to hell because you did that or because you did this or if you do that, you'll go to hell. No, we are called as a church, we're fruit inspectors, meaning this. Hold out your branches. Let's, let's look at the fruit, right? What's the fruit? Is there fruit? And the loving brother or sister will come up to somebody 
who is saying that they're a brother or sister in Christ, but there's no fruit, and they'll say, um, you know, Jesus talks about that there should be some fruit. What's going on? Are you running? Are you scared? Are you afraid? Those all could be realities because we've all probably been in that place before. And he says, connected to him or abiding. Abide in me and I will what? And when he says that, he becomes the light of your life. The word of God becomes illuminated to you when you open it up. You begin to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. You have the word of God with the spirit of God. The, the path is now illuminated. It's not a wide one. All your buddies are maybe over there, but you've got the path right here, and you say, if this is the path that you're on, Lord, it's the path I want to be. Let's stand. Lindsay, I'm going to have you play a song. We have it five minutes. Whatever you want to play, you can tell Carrie. You don't have like a have thine own way, Lord, do you? Not in that. Mm, Do you have something about following? Yeah, play whatever you want. (laughs) I have decided. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Do you have that? Oh, never mind. Oh, okay, yeah, go ahead. What's the rest of the song? Yeah, I like, oh, that's a good one. Good thing we talked through that. Play whatever you want. (laughs) Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Here's what I want to do. I asked earlier, when was the last time you honestly just spent some time with the Lord, just a few minutes, and said, Lord, I need you to transform my, I I need you to do this. Uh, By the way, is, is there anybody in here you're not going to say, is there anybody in here that, that struggles with the flesh in any, in any way whatsoever? Yeah. Less of us, more of him. That's what we need. And if you're struggling with the flesh today, it means you struggle with the flesh yesterday and last week and last month and last year. You know how it works, right? You know the frustration. You know the frustration. There's only one thing that conquers flesh, and that's the light of life.